The next time you're shopping for mountain bike gear, check out singletracks.com slash deals. Each week we share our favorite product picks and exclusive coupon codes from our partners. You can also use the page to search for whatever you're buying from complete mountain bikes to brake sets and tire sealant. That's singletracks.com slash deals. And to get our weekly picks delivered to your inbox, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Links to the newsletter and deals page are in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Kurt Refsnyder. So Kurt is a badass bike packer, and he's the only person to have won all three events in the Triple Crown of Bikepacking. That's the Tour Divide, the Arizona Trail 750, and most recently he won the Colorado Trail Race. He's also a former professor of geology, a cycling coach, and the founder of Bikepacking Roots, an organization that advocates for bikepacking and the environment. Thanks for joining us, Kurt. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I read that you completed your first solo century bike ride at the age of 13. So most 13-year-olds would probably feel good about riding just a quarter of that distance. What did it feel like to you to finish uh, such a big ride at, at an early age? Oh, that was it's, it was kind of a entertaining story looking back on it because it all stemmed. Like I was really just I loved riding bikes around the woods near my house in Minnesota and just exploring on my bike at that point. Most of my rides probably were like eight miles, fifteen miles, something like that at most. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in the uh, the library with my mom, just the county library, and you know they used to have these long shelves of all the current editions of different magazines out and. Uh, one of them that I was looking at as I was walking by was bicycling and on the cover, they had one of their, you know, very kind of catchy, sensationalized <laughs> titles yeah. for an article. And it was like, you too can ride a century. And immediately in my head, I was like, how do you ride a hundred years? <laughs> and I picked it up just to look at what that even meant. And I was like, oh, a hundred miles. And they had just a little chart with these kind of recommended training, training progressions for how many miles a day to do for, you know, three months or something leading up to your first century. And they had columns if you want to do it fast and if you want to survive it and something in the middle. And so I checked that magazine out and took it home and photocopying that little chart. And for some reason that doing, trying to do a century just really sounded interesting to me at that age of, (laughs) for some reason. Yeah. (laughs) So my, uh, I didn't even have a road bike. And so my dad, took me to a couple different bike shops and I found a used old Panasonic road bike for a hundred bucks that he helped me buy and then helped me completely rebuild. And I just followed one of those little training plans for three months. And then he took me out to these uh, rural roads west of uh, Minneapolis that he had scouted out himself. And he had found a loop that was, I think, 20 miles. And so I did five laps and he just sat there <laughs> by the family van in a chair waiting for me. And I remember he was super supportive of, of the idea. Yeah. And I remember finishing and just being absolutely completely exhausted. <laughs> and, and it was, I mean, it was like probably seven hours or something, which looking back, I'm pretty impressed by my 13 year old self. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I don't think I rode my road bike for quite a while after that. Yeah. Well, that's what I was interested to know. Like, were you, after you finished, were you like, that was awesome. Like, what can I do that's harder than this? Or were you just like, all right, I did it. That's good. I don't need to do it again. I think that was pretty much it. Like I still was really excited about bikes. And I think I went back to my cheap little 24 inch wheeled mountain bike and just went back to my riding on trails around the house. And for the next few years, I got more into mountain biking and did some cross country racing Mm -hmm. that year. Um, wasn't particularly fast, 
uh, but had fun with it and, and was really, really put more of my energy into Nordic ski racing. And in Minnesota, all the high schools or not all, but there's like 80 high school uh, Nordic ski teams. And so it's a pretty big, pretty big sport there. Yeah. And so I did that all four years. I was in high school and then through college. And so that really over bikes was my real focus for, for quite a few years. So it wasn't like I didn't really get into the ultra endurance thing for a long time after that that first ride but it did kind of set the stage for just wanting to challenge myself and see what see what I was capable of physically and and mentally even though I didn't really realize that's probably what was driving me at the time yeah well do you feel like completing challenges sort of drives you to find you know the next bigger one like do you feel like you're you're kind of addicted like can you can you ever get enough of that i guess is kind of the question yeah that's a really good question it's one i've been thinking about quite a bit this, like the last couple of years, because I've been racing, doing these ultras for uh, more than a decade now. And uh, with the, we can talk more about the Colorado trail race later, potentially, but mm-hmm. that's one that I had tried four times before this year. And each time I pretty much got either completely shut down or didn't even come close to my goals and wasn't able to finish the event. And so finishing that one this year was kind of one of those big residual goals that I hadn't met. and thinking ahead to the coming years about just like, well, what do I, what do I want to do now? Do I want to keep doing these kinds of races? And, and it, I think one of the things I realized was that these sorts of challenges are really important for me. I think I'm really a goal oriented person in that sense, but they don't need to necessarily be competitive goals in the same, in that way. And so I think that, I mean, just trying to do that century when I was 13 was in that same vein. And for this, this next year, there's a few few goals I have related to more kind of expeditionary bike travel that are, are really intimidating to me. And I think it's just that, you know, some kind of challenge and maybe a little bit of intimidation are, are really important for um, driving me, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in that competitive realm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, what do you, what do your friends and family think about <laughs> sort of these endeavors? Are they like, man, did you have enough yet? Like, are they surprised at this and, and under, or are they understanding? Yeah, I think a lot of them realize that it's just kind of part of who I've become over the last decade or, you know, my family knows that I've been been racing and challenging myself in those sorts of ways since I was like 15 years old. Right. Not always long distance stuff, but yeah, yeah, maybe they're not surprised. They're like, he's 13. He rode 100 miles for no reason. Yeah, I think for my parents, it's just like they've seen it as just this continuous progression. Yeah, which which really is what it's been for for my friends that friends I've had for a while that it's just yeah that's part of part of what I pursue in life and so yeah it's all pretty normalized to them (laughs) well yeah I mean you mentioned attempting the Colorado trail race four times so I guess at some of those previous attempts you must have reached a point either physically or mentally where you finally sort of found your limit right yeah definitely in um I mean two two of those attempts were d- with the actual race mass start race which is kind of it's an under underground event well known at this point but you know just completely self-supported and there's a recommended start time uh, but you can also challenge the route under the same self-supported rules at any time you want mm-hmm. so a couple times i'd done it on my own couple times with the event and both times with the event uh, my body just wasn't having it i mean that race starts off from the if you go in the durango to denver direction starts off with something like 18,000 feet of climbing in the first hundred miles. Wow. You're only a fifth, not even a fifth of the way done. And so my body just couldn't handle that a couple of those times. 
one of those times my head just wasn't in the right headspace at all, that there'd be too much else going on in life. And I think I, I went into the race just kind of mentally or emotionally tired from all of those other things. And being able to focus in a race like that to just keep moving forward steadily and take care of yourself and then also have the remaining kind of bandwidth within your head to be looking around and enjoying where you are <laughs> is like that's all so important to my experience and for me me to be able to complete one of those events and that like that bandwidth just wasn't there in that one and so yeah you know two of those i bailed one was like the first night <laughs> wow um i was in the and you know i probably had a, an hour gap on second place already and just got part way up the next climb. I was like, you know, I, this isn't going to happen this time. Yeah. Just stopped, just off the route at an old mine and slept on kind of rough, rocky mine tailings. And I went to sleep, like, you know, for the race, my plan was to sleep a couple hours each night and I stopped and I slept for 11 hours straight. Oh, wow. I think that really underscored just how, how tired parts of me were going into the event. Yeah. Even, you know, my legs felt fine. And then a couple of the two starts I had from the Denver, side of things when I used to live in the front range were both individual time trials, so not part of the official event. And one of those, I was just trying to squeeze in one more event. I'd won the, or set a, a record in the Arizona Trail 750 uh, like two months before that, back in 2010, I guess. It was the first year that route was raced and then did a couple 50 mile running races and was like, oh, I'm on such good form. I can definitely, I can, I can squeeze in one more big thing. And then I, I was going up to the Arctic for a um, geology field season. And so I was like, I'll just squeeze in one more thing. And I literally got uh, about 24 hours in and couldn't even, my, my legs were so exhausted. I couldn't even push my bike up a pass. Oh, wow. Like it was just everything shut down. And so that was one that my physical limit was very clearly reached. And yeah, all I could do was turn around and coast back down and walk up every little rise and collapse at the bottom basically. Well, how does that feel though when you reach that limit? Like are you mad at yourself? Are you able to just kind of be like, you know what? Like this isn't my day and or this isn't my year to do this and I'm okay with that. I'll come back better prepared or I think it's a combination of both. Like it's always a huge learning experience, especially because it's I don't think I would in any of the cases where that's happened, I expected that was going to be the outcome. Mm -hmm. So that I think that's the, the source of frustration when it happens is that I wasn't able to recognize that, that I was getting close to that point. And, um, you know, a few of those were really early in my um, ultra racing career. And so I just wasn't very in tune with a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And so I think my ability to to be able to gauge that has gotten way better. But even just like three years ago, it happened again. And it's like, whoa, I like, why was I so blind to that? Yeah, should have been should have been obvious. And so I think each each time that happens, it really there's a lot to be taken away from it, both in terms of just knowing more about what my body and mind are capable of and just knowing what being aware of just how how life in general is going at any given time, recognizing all the different things that that might be stressing us or might be empowering us or, you know, all the sources that that can help push us forward effectively or stand like make us stand in our own way moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a really positive way to, to view failure is, is to learn from it and not yeah. sort of dwell on it and move on and get ready for the next one. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I, the other frustration is that these, these sorts of events, even if you're only out there for the first 24 hours before you, you bail, there's just so much energy that goes into the preparation them. And even, even just, you know, racing for 20 hours, 24 hours straight, 
like that puts you in a pretty big energetic hole mm-hmm. alone. And so I've been trying to be really careful with my energy expenditure for these events and only doing a couple of, the, of these events a year because of that. And so, you know, if, if you do go into one and miss the miss some key indicators that your energy just isn't going to let you finish, then it's kind of that's a whole bunch of wasted energy actually doing that event, but only making it a day in or two days in or something like that. And so that's at this point, that's something that that I try to avoid completely. I think for newer ultra racers, there's so much to be learned in even two days of of doing one of these races before you might have to bail for some reason. So it's not necessarily a negative for everyone. And I definitely had a different different perspective 10 years ago in these when it, when it was so much more about the learning than anything else. Right. Yeah. And it takes a lot of guts to sort of ignore all those sunk costs, right? Like you're talking about where you're like, oh man, I've been preparing for this forever and it took me forever to pack my bike and I'm here and like, you know, to, to get past that and say, you know what, like that doesn't matter. It's, it's what's happening right now and I need to make the best decision that I can. Yep, exactly. And there, you know, I think classic example is tour divide with, there's so many folks that put, you know, six months, eight months, 10 months into preparing for that. They may have been thinking about it for two years. Mm -hmm. Some of those riders put so much energy and both mental and physical into training. And there have been a few folks that get up to BAMP for the start. And literally the day before the race or on race day, they're like, you know, I'm worn out. I actually <laughs> have the takes to do this. And they don't even start. And I think, you know, in, in it, it is a huge learning experience for them. And I think it's really enviable that they're able to recognize that that's where they are at that given moment. And continuing on and starting the event and just draining themselves out there isn't worth so i think that's yeah there's you know i'm not alone in in having some of those that's that's for sure right yeah and and it can be dangerous too i imagine if you go out and you're you're not you're not in the right space you can really get hurt or lost or yep definitely and the decision making ability might be hampered and you know in some of these more remote events or where you're in just really taxing conditions really cold weather or snow or something like that yeah, if you're not able to make make smart decisions, you could end up in a bad place really quickly. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about training for these types of competitions. So you claim to be self-coached and clearly that's worked out really well for you. Do you think this works for everyone? No, I don't think it does. And I, I think I've had the fortune of racing quite a few different disciplines and even different endurance sports over the past these 25 years now, which is kind of to say <laughs> or to hear myself say quarter century yeah but between um nordic ski like short distance racing and marathons and then i raced a little bit on the velodrome as a kid because there was one actually right near right near my house and near the bike shop i worked at and i spent quite a few years chasing like uci points on the elite cyclocross circuit hmm. uh, and then quite a few years focused on on road racing and crits in the midwest especially and so I had had some really good mentors along the way that have been racing for a while and were way more experienced in the the training. And so they oftentimes provided a lot of guidance, but doing all these different things for so long and being pretty focused on really serious training for probably, geez, starting in like 2006 or so, I learned learned a lot personally about just what works and what doesn't work for me. And through, you know, I'm a scientist by training. And so just the the experimentation side of things and really systematically approaching things is just in, in my nature. It's how I've been been trained and think how I am inclined to be in general. And then 
when I started racing ultras, part of that was that was a shift away from racing cyclocross was actually what I was doing before that. And, you know, each year of national championships was a huge, huge goal for me. And so, you know, at that point, I'm focused on like 60 minute races. Yeah, that's, that's very different. It was. Yeah, it's the complete other end of the spectrum. And I literally got tired of going around in circles um, in those sorts of races. Like I really enjoyed that scene. But after doing it for quite a few years, there just wasn't much adventure. It was all about like, can I place three places better at this big race or something next year? And I was living in, in Colorado at the time and just feeling a little put off that I was spending so much time just riding around on the roads at the base of the front range and not getting yeah. way back into these really cool backcountry trails and old mine roads and exploring uh, more remote areas in the mountains. And so I started doing that more in the off seasons on, on mountain bike and pretty quickly realized that big days were really what I wanted to be doing. Hmm. Not necessarily racing, but then I discovered there were a few of these. This was in 2007, 2008. There were just a handful of bikepacking races at that point. The Great Divide race, the predecessor to Tour Divide, was one. The Iditarod Trail Invitational up in Alaska was one. And the, this thing called the Grand Loop, which doesn't exist anymore, but out in western Colorado and eastern Utah. Yeah. And that one, I was like, 360 miles? I bet I could maybe do that. <laughs> and so that one captured my attention first. And then for the next probably four years, five years, my approach to training for ultras was just driven by absolutely loving riding at that point. And it was basically just as many miles as I can do. That's training. Yeah. And the more I do, the better prepared I'll be for those long events. And I think that's how so many people tend to approach preparing for ultras. And it was really fun for a while. And then after four or five years of that, I was like, I can't, like, I just can't manage this in my life anymore. It's too much time investment. Like one of those years I rode maybe two of them were over a thousand hours, which if you do the math is literally an eighth of the year, like total number of hours in the year. And I don't know, I was in grad school at the time. I don't know how I managed to fit all that in. And it really helped with my endurance, but it didn't necessarily make me fast. And so following that, I started to actually dive into the sports science literature a lot more. And as a, again, as a scientist, I was really interested in what, what studies had been done and digging into the actual publications that came out of those studies. And so I spent a while in that literature and there's not a lot specific to ultra racing out there. There's, there's quite a bit that's been done in Europe for like ultra triathlons, these crazy events where they'll do like 10 Ironmans basically, but the distances aren't <laughs> necessarily like the same swim, bike, run, swim, bike, run as an Ironman. They might do like a 300 mile ride and then swim in a pool for some insane distance and then do like a 60 mile run, but they're always coming back to the same point. And so it's really easy for a scientist to just be there, or a doctor to be there taking blood samples or urine samples or whatever mm -hmm. and monitoring through the event. And then Race Across America has had some decent, decent research done on, on athletes in that. But there's not a ton out there specific to the ultra side of things. But I, I gobbled up what I could from all that and started to put more of that into practice in my own training, which dramatically changed both my excitement for training and how how I was riding in these events and my, you know, I went from just kind of sustaining a, a reasonable speed for a long time to being able to ride a lot faster and not necessarily indefinitely, but in like a two or three day event, my time started dropping by like six hours or something like, which, yeah, which was massive. And it wasn't just the training. There was a lot of other experience that went into, um, those gains, but the, the change in 
in training regime really, really made a huge difference for me. And so it was, and it was also around that time that other folks uh, started wondering about getting help preparing for these events. And it was when, when bikepacking events were really starting to grow quickly and when like Tour Divide went from having 60, 70 riders a year to like 120, 140 a year and yeah. new events were popping up all over the place. And so that was in the, the early 2010s, I guess, when things started to grow. And so it was shortly after that, that, that I started actually offering to help, help other folks train. And that, that side of things has just steadily grown in, in, in the five years, four years since, since I started doing that formally. And that's been, that's been so much fun to do because everyone is coming from a different standpoint and different um, starting point and everyone has different goals for what they want to be getting out of these events. Um, and so being able to, to really see and absorb what it is that makes these different riders tick and then recognize some of that in myself and recognize that in other athletes, be able to capitalize on, on some of those things. Yeah. That's an interesting idea of, of sort of the coach learning from the, the people that you're coaching. And I mean, I guess, I guess it's the same with teaching as well. You know, you really get to know a subject by, by teaching it, you know, I mean, you can, you can learn it, but then to actually have to like explain it back to somebody else, imagine, yeah, you get a lot out of that. That's totally true. And the best, I was a, a as you mentioned earlier, a geology professor for what, six years. And I taught as a, a teaching assistant for uh, more than that as a grad student. And the most exciting and rewarding and fruitful teaching experiences and the ones that I took the most away from were the ones where it was the student and instructor learning together. And, you know, the instructor is always going to know more than the students, but the like dry, when that process is being driven forward by both, both parties together, that's, yeah, it's amazing. And so it's, I think it really is the same thing in coaching when, you know, it's, it's not very exciting when I can just tell somebody like, okay, here's six days for the next week. Here's what you should do. And it just continues that way. And there's not a ton of communication coming from, from the other side, but when it's really mutually back and forth and, uh, having to problem solve and troubleshoot and come up with strategies for, and, uh, kind of tools for building on past learning, that's when it turns into this really, really exciting relationship. And that's, yeah, that's what makes me love being a coach more than anything. I think, and it doesn't even matter how, how that, how that athlete might end up doing in a race. It's the process to get there that I think is the most rewarding. Right. That's really cool. I mean, it's interesting too, in your story, clearly you're very self-motivated, you know, you don't need necessarily, it doesn't sound like a coach telling you what to do in terms of workouts and, you know, like making sure you stick to them, like you're going to do them. But not only that, you're motivated to sort of figure it out. I mean, to, to create that training plan to not only stick to it, but to create it in the first place, which I think is unique. Does it feel ironic to you though, to, to coach others, even though you didn't need a, a coach yourself? Do you think you missed out on anything by, by not having a coach? I totally do. Yeah, I really do. Um, when I, like way back in high school, when I was Nordic ski racer, I was at, you know, kind of, kind of the upper, upper group of, of folks in terms of speed. And most of the other, um, athletes in that kind of, that I was really competing against, they had, you know, summer coaching programs and some of them had coaches all year long outside of the, the high school coach. And they definitely progressed way faster than I did. One of the downsides was, most of them by partway through college or after college or even after high school, they were completely burnt out and quit racing and a lot of them quit skiing completely. And, but then like 
moving farther forward, I think my progression as an athlete in any one of the disciplines I raced would have been way faster had I had somebody helping direct my training energy and making it a little bit smarter, making sure I was better about recovering and not just riding all the time because I loved it. So I think, you know, it was one of those, like I, I learned a ton from doing that all on my own. I could have learned it faster from having someone else helping me, but I think the learning was so much more impactful because I, it was self-driven and done on my own. So it's, I, I don't know if you want to, if you want to improve at something really quickly, I think having an expert in that area helping you, I think that's the way to do it. And if you are just doing it out of passion, it might actually be better to do just completely, completely on your own and figure it out on your own. If, if, if you're that kind, if you have that kind of personality. Right. That makes sense. Well, you mentioned that you've sort of changed your approach to training. And I think for a lot of people, you know, it might seem like to do one of these, you know, long distance races, all you need to do is just ride a lot. And it sounds like maybe that's kind of was your initial sort of training regime, but now you're, you're spending less time on the bike. What does the sort of training look like for you now? What's like a, a typical day that you might go out and, and what would that ride or that training look like? Yeah, it well, it really varies dramatically through any particular part of the progression preparing for an event. And I think it like it starts off generally like if I was training for like the Colorado Trail Race last year. I'd been doing a fair amount of regular riding and some some longer longer single day races just for fun in like November December and Colorado Trail Race was at the very end of July. So starting in February or so, I started to really increase uh mileage and did more of like a traditional base building period with a lot of big rides and just miles. Some some intensity included in there just kind of as it felt good, but the goal at that point is just some big days. Um, and especially big back to back or back to back to back days. And then by March, so four, four months out from the event, four to five months out from the event, a big transition into doing a lot more intensity and doing a, a lot of, and it depends on the type of race, but for, for like tour divide, all you need to be able to do in theory is keep pedaling. Like it's, you don't, it's dirt roads and jeep roads like you just need to be able to pedal yeah and so set your body up to be able to do that and to have the muscular endurance to just keep pedaling steadily without regular um you know brakes coasting on descents and things like that you might do a lot of tempo like trying to get yourself up to being able to do four hour continuous tempo effort in like mid zone three which is not particularly enjoyable to do but man the benefits are huge if you do it wisely and don't like can't do too much of that for something more like the Colorado trail race where the, you know, the, the climbing is the huge challenge and you might be climbing for four hours continuously and then coasting and bumping along on techie trail for, you know, the next hour and a half after that and getting some decent recovery from the climb. Um, a lot more work at higher intensities, um, lower cadence work, building, building strength for being able to do that on a loaded bike. And a lot, I do a ton of time, um, at sweet spot, which is like the zone three, four, uh, boundary. And so harder than tempo, it's, it's hard pace, but not overly hard and just accumulating a lot of time in that realm. And so I'll do, um, entire training blocks of like two, two weeks or even back to back blocks that are focused primarily on that. And so those rides will be a lot of like three, three to four hour rides where I'm trying to get, you know, 60 to 90 minutes of sweet spot time in along the way. And 
And I, for me, one of the most important or probably the most important thing about training is just making it fun. And so I'll do a lot of those rides on trail and Jeep roads and old mine roads and things, which isn't necessarily quite ideal for keeping your power absolutely steady for those, those efforts, but it's so much more fun and engaging for me. I get excited to go out and do those sorts of rides. Whereas if it, you know, I live in, in the mountains in central Arizona where it can be um, fairly snowy in the winter, actually. And when it is, you know, the options for training are a lot more limited. And so the idea of going out and doing those efforts on a road really, it doesn't get me excited at all. So it's, it's the days when I can be like, okay, cool. I'm going to go ride the Spruce Mountain Loop three times and do sweet spot up the climb every time. And for some people that would just make them cringe because, you know, it's a challenging trail, Mm -hmm. super steep, really rocky, but it's so engaging to be able to, you know, be trying to ride hard while on that kind of thing. And it doesn't feel like you're, you're out there pushing for nearly as long as you actually are. So I try to keep things really fun for myself in that way. And it, like I said, it's not ideal from a training, like a just purely physical perspective. But if I can keep myself excited to be doing that through a whole four month lead up to an event, I'm going to arrive at that event so much more excited to be out there and having had so much more fun in the prep. So I put a lot of emphasis on that, that side of things. And then the last part of the training build up for an event backs off the the big rides. Uh, I'll probably do a sequence of a, like a short bike packing trip or a few, um, a few big, big back to back to back days, like eight to 10 hours and then recover. And then the last probably three to four weeks is focused just on really high intensity work because invariably there are going to be places where you have to be able to put out a lot of power on short, steep climbs and on the bike. And, you know, you can only do that so many times. The cliche phrase of you've only got so many matches to burn. And if each one of those climbs takes one match, well, you know, by the end of day one, you might be out of matches. But if you could get your legs and your body much more adapted to being able to go not hard, but a little bit harder than you want to be going during a race to be able to stay on your bike, then that'll really make you a lot faster during that first day. And it'll mean that you don't feel nearly as fatigued by the end of it. So, so that's, that's my normal progression. And the, I think the ironic thing is that I don't actually follow a training plan for myself. It's a lot of like, I have this very concrete idea of the progression in my head of where I want to be going at any given um, period. But day to day, it's a lot of just what do I feel like doing today? Well, I need to be doing these these three things this week. Should I do that today or tomorrow? And it's a lot of flexibility around just making sure I'm, I'm doing what sounds most most entertaining and most exciting and seems like the least work on any given day because I have enough other things going on in my life that if as soon as the training seems like work, then it's not being the fun outlet that I need it to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think a lot of listeners too will, will enjoy hearing that, that it doesn't have to be this grind, you know, that it's, that maybe, I mean, it almost sounds like you can get more out of it is if you're mentally there and you're focused and you're enjoying it versus just sort of the headspace you're in. If, if you hate every single one of your training rides, like, yeah, are you going to get as much out of it? That's, uh, I guess that's an open question. Yeah, it is. And I think it really depends on the kind of racing that you're doing that, you know, if you're focused on, you know, 90 minute cross country races or something like that, you can be super excited to race, not enjoy the training much, but arrive having followed your training plan to a T, not been stoked about it, but at race day, you're really excited to race and you're really strong as a result of following that training. And that can work out great. But when you're doing 100 mile races or 300 or 1000, like, your head needs to be in the right space for that entire time or, you know, most of the time. 
Uh, and so if you're, if you're getting there, you can be really excited, but just mentally tired and that's going to be hard to force your way through. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that sort of the, you know, a lot of mountain bikers, if they have experience with races, it's like you said, a cross country race, maybe an enduro, but you know, these are sort of half day events or less. Yeah. So I want to know like what, you know, you, you won the tour divide in 2011. And for those who don't know, that's a 2,700 mile race. So we're talking a couple weeks that you're out on the trail at least. So that was 15, 15 days that year. Yeah. Yeah. So more than two weeks. So, I mean, what's it like to race continuously? A lot of us, again, with the experience we've had, you know, we know that we get like nervous and, you know, you're, you're racing hard the whole time. You're looking over your shoulder. Like, is that something you experience when you're bikepacking or is it a more sort of relaxed? Like, I, I just can't imagine how you could stay at that level uh, for more than just a couple hours. I think it really depends on the racer's personality, what they feel like in that part, any, any particular long event like that. For me, that was the second time I had done that event. So I knew, knew exactly what I was getting into the year before or two years before when I did it the first time, I think it was 18 and a half days. That was my, my first race longer than three days. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it's a huge difference. A lot longer than three days. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all dirt road and Jeep road and like four by four track type stuff. So there's definitely some rough stuff, but it's a lot of just dirt road, rough dirt road riding. And it's, you know, races like that, you can't pay that much attention to what's going on around you and, and react based on what other people are doing. You need to be able to just ride whatever pace is sustainable for you at any given time, focus on getting the calories in, which can be one of the biggest challenges. And making sure that you're you're prepared for whatever the next section of that route is. And so there's so much more, I don't want to say necessarily strategy, but just planning mm -hmm. both ahead of time and during the race, paying attention to just like what the weather's doing, what the what the road conditions are, how long it's likely gonna take for you to get from the next resupply point to the one after that, which might be, you know, they might be a hundred miles apart, they might be two hundred miles apart. And so being able to plan to get the right amount of food and then force yourself to just continuously be eating and getting all that food down, which I think is one of the hardest parts. Mm, yeah. I mean, if you need to be getting 300 or 350 calories an hour in, it feels like you're eating constantly <laughs> and that just doesn't stop if you're riding for 20 hours a day. Yeah. And so just staying on top of your, your, your body's needs and recognizing those is so important. It's so easy in races like that if you go too hard on the first day or on any given day to dig yourself into a physical hole that can take half a day or a day or a couple days of backing off of it to get out of. Mm -hmm. And so it's like even in short ultras, it's amazing to look at the power data from, you know, a record setting ride. And it's a whole lot of time in zone two. <laughs> Not very fast or high power at all. And same thing in Tour Divide, like just being able to keep it nice and steady, completely aerobic, never dig too deep, and just knowing what is actually sustainable for you. And so much of that is just gauging on how you feel in the moment, how, how your end levels are. It sounds, I mean, it almost sounds like you're kind of racing yourself. I mean, you have to be very self-aware and like, this is, this is what I can do and hopefully it's enough. But are you ever, you know, do you, do you feel like this competitive thing well up ever when like... You see somebody pass you or like, or like, are you really focused and like, I don't want to talk to anybody. Like I'm trying to, <laughs> you know, win here or like I'm in first or I'm in second. Like, do you think about that stuff during the race? 
do and you can't focus on it, especially in a race that's like two weeks long. Like that just that if your mind is on that sort of thing the whole time, it's not going to get you to the finish. It's not going to make you be necessarily or at least for almost everyone. It's for me personally, it's really so much of during the race is just paying attention and really enjoying where I am and what I'm doing and feeling so so fortunate to be able to be out there doing that and to be in to be legitimately racing through some amazing places that I probably wouldn't wouldn't have been otherwise. But that being said, like that that year, 2011 in Tour Divide, it was an odd year because the course had more snow than it's ever had on it before or since then. And so there actually were snow, snow detours that year. And so right from the start, the we, we all knew that there was going to be no breaking any records, um, potentially because it a slightly different course from normal. And usually the, the front runners in these races are kind of fixated on trying to set a new course record. That's just part of the, the mentality. It seems like in these, these bikepacking ultras. Right. Which again, isn't, it isn't to be f- the first in the race. I mean, you, that's a byproduct of it, but it really is. It's sort of racing yourself as saying, can I be, you know, the best, can I set the fastest time? Yeah. And that fastest time is, you know, probably going to be someone from some other year. And so you're kind of their ghost almost. <laughs> but in that year, we knew from the start uh, that there were going to be no records broken. And there were there were quite a few really strong riders in the field that year. And it pretty much by like the second or third day, it had um, the front of the field that separated out into just a few of us. Uh, me, Hefe Brenham from uh, Gunnison, Colorado, who's a pretty well-known ultra racer, an incredibly talented guy. He was he was out in front. Um, and then me and Ethan Passant, who is, was another really, he was a really well-known hundred mile racer and has, he did a few, he did the Colorado trail race quite a few years and he hasn't raced in, in a little while now, but he was, he was right up there with me and it turned into a race between the three of us. And because the chasing any record was not on the table, we weren't taking any kind of like systematic approach. Like this is record pace. I need to just be hammering out like 190 miles a day or something like that it turned into us watching each other. And I think each of us were quite intimidated by one another Uh, (laughs) in a a good way. But by like the halfway point, yeah, by the halfway point, it it had been some pretty dynamic races racing. Like I had put in one 36 hour effort straight, which was not smart, but it was half. I had been hanging like five or six hours ahead. And I finally started to feel really good um, by like day six. And so I was just like, I'm just going to keep going and see, see what happens. And so I reeled him in, got a big gap on Ethan. And then the next day, Hefe caught back up to me as I was sleeping and recovering from a giant effort. And so he and I rode kind of close to each other for a day. And then Ethan caught back up to us. And we had a couple days of really awkward riding pretty much together at uh, each like, I think we were relieved that the pace dropped a little bit and we slept a little bit more each night, like five hours a night. Uh-huh. But each of us was thinking, I think, how, like, how is someone going to get away? Like, you can either attack, which, you know, in road racing can be a super hard effort for like five minutes and then settle in. Yeah. But in these races, it's like, you can't do that. It's like, <laughs> you can't go that hard for one. Your legs are just too fatigued. And so either you put in a slightly harder effort for many hours and you basically just need to get in and next out of the next town before the next person does. And that's sort of like the getting out of sight type thing in, in breakaways in the road or other types of racing, or you need to like sneak away in the morning when everyone else is still sleeping, which isn't really possible. 
or you just ride farther at night, which isn't really possible when you've got a couple stubborn people with you that are just going to keep riding as long as you're riding. And so that ended up being the, the first case where I put in an attack climbing away from the Colorado River, which is a, I don't know, 3,000 foot climb in central Colorado, and just went slightly harder for like six hours, which was so painful, but it was enough to open up a gap and get in and out of the next town. And so I didn't end up, I saw Hefe again, like four days later, I think, and never saw Ethan again. Hefe and I were then back and forth through New Mexico. And so that was, that was a really interesting year because it was like that focus on the competition was really there. But in so many others, it's just completely inwardly focused. Like, am I within my limits right now? And like, can I push a little harder? Am I taking care of myself? All that sort of thing. Yeah. So it definitely varies. And I think some people are really fixated on everyone around them. And for a few folks, that works well. For a lot, it just makes them overdo it and dig themselves into a hole too soon. Yeah. But just depends on personalities, I think. Yeah. That's fascinating. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about an organization you started called Bikepacking Roots which helps create bikepacking routes, uh, promotes the sport, and encourages backcountry ethics among bikepackers. All of that sounds like a really tall order. So what are some of the things that your group is doing along those three lines? Yeah, so we we launched as a nonprofit in 2017, I guess, so just two and a half years ago or so. And it came out of a need recognized um, by the co-founder, Caitlin Boyle, and, and myself that we had been doing a lot of big, big trips together around the world and in the Western U.S. And we had been teaching a, a course for Prescott College called Geology Through Bikepacking for a few years. And I, you know, I obviously had been engaged in the bikepacking community since 2007, I guess, 2008. Uh, and at that point, it was a tiny, tiny community. And so by the mid 2000s, 2010s, I don't know what they're called anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but um the community was growing really quickly. There was big demand for new, really like well, well created routes. Yeah. Demand from who? Was it from bikepackers or it seems like there's a tourism component to it as well. A lot of states are getting involved. That's just really starting to grow now at that point. I mean, one of the other issues was bikepackers were pretty much an invisible user group to communities, to land managers and the, the need for, someone, some organization to be cognizant of and be advocating for the needs of bikepackers in terms of access and in terms of conservation of these big wild places that so many of us really like to ride through and become immersed in. That was something that was becoming apparent. There had been a few few events and a few routes that basically shut down because of poor behavior of bikepackers on them. And I think more out of folks coming from like the mountain bike world, the non-backcountry world, where just backcountry ethics and good practices were not well understood or well known because, uh, you know, so many, so many people that just spend time in the front country aren't exposed to that in the same ways. Yeah. What's an example of like bad behavior? Not to, not to single any one out or any particular situation, but what is something that um, bike packers might do that's, that's not a good thing to do? Yeah. So there, there's a, I mean, there's quite a few that come to mind. A lot of it comes out of, of the racing side of things, unfortunately, but, um, like stealth camping on private land is something that you hear about often. Um, one of those events had people camping in someone's barn. Um, 
leaving cash behind, which is just kind of shocking to hear about. There are, for some reason, it's become really almost like a badge of honor in the bikepacking world to sleep in forest service outhouses. <laughs> that doesn't sound very, very nice anyway. Why would you even want to do that? Well, in some cases, like in bear con- grizzly bear country, people feel safer. A lot of racers definitely are a little underprepared for weather in some cases. If it's cold, rainy or something like that, it's a little warmer and sheltered inside those things. But it just it reflects really poorly on the community, and the user groups to do that sort of thing. Yeah, there's, you know, just lots of things like that that aren't widespread problems, but were becoming obvious enough that it was something we were concerned about. Yeah. I mean, to me, you know, I haven't done a lot of bikepacking. Well, any really aside from like hut to hut type of trips. But yeah, I mean, all of that is not obvious stuff to me, right? Like I, I imagine I would approach a bikepacking trip almost as like a survival thing, right? Like whatever I have to do to like not die out here and, and make it to my destination. And so, yeah, it's interesting because those are not things I would have thought of that that it would be a big deal to like set up your tent in somebody's field that um, you don't have permission or, or, or taking advantage of an outhouse when it's, you know, raining out and like, what are you going to do? Otherwise you're going to freeze. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes like if it's a safety thing legitimately, well, yeah, that's, you know, that's another story, but mm-hmm. it's part of it comes down to just being prepared enough to deal with the, the conditions that you're likely to encounter along the way. So but and and one of the other issues with being a newer user group is just any kind of decisions by land managers on public lands that could affect bike packers don't actually have the bike packing community being considered in in that decision process because so many land managers didn't even recognize that as a new new user group on on public lands because it was such a, a kind of a new thing and so you know we're sort of like backpackers in a lot of ways, but the distances we travel are so different. The need for key connectivity in certain places, like if there's only one way that mountain bikes can access or, or gain access through a particular area. So if it's like a little swath between two wilderness areas or, you know, just a single trail, maybe through one area, it might not be popular with hikers or something like that. And so if that trail does get closed or if the um, usage uh, permitted usage on it changes and bikes are no longer allowed on it that's hugely consequential potentially for bike packers where it might not be any other user group and so they're just there there weren't any groups that were paying attention to things like that and getting engaged with land managers to try to problem solve and you know imba had been definitely doing some in the back country but their focus has shifted more and more toward the front country in recent years, just as the, that's so much of, of what their membership, um, where their membership ride, rides, and that's where you can impact the most people um, in a positive way. And so understandably, they've been putting more of their energy into the front country access. And, you know, Adventure Cycling Association has done amazing things for advocacy related to the more the road cycling world. And they're the creators of the Great Divide mountain bike route, which is what Tour Divide follows for the race. And so they haven't had much of a gravel or dirt emphasis over the years, but they've done great, great things in advocacy on the roadside. But nobody was was really doing that same thing for, for the bikepacking world. So that was something else that we we saw as a, a real important opportunity and need. And so we've been engaging and trying to get more bikepackers to engage in the, the planning processes for a number of different national forest and BLM and, and monument issues, um, especially in the West, Western U.S. And been engaged in just trail specific 
issues in, in a few few places in the West at this point. Speaking of access and wilderness, what's your take on the fight to allow mountain bikes in wilderness areas in the USA? You know, we have groups like the Sustainable Trails Coalition that are looking for sort of a, a legislative solution that, you know, kind of affects all wilderness areas. It sounds like maybe what you and your group are advocating is something that's more sort of specific to um, just ensuring that connectivity exists along uh, important bikepacking routes. Yeah, or potentially isn't lost in areas where maybe there isn't pop where there aren't popular bikepacking routes currently, but where you know once once you lose that access, it's it's very challenging to regain. And so, preventative approach that like, well, there is only one or two ways through that mountain range for bikes. Let's let's make sure that that's maintained. The wilderness issues, wilderness with a capital W issue, is definitely a a challenging one. To well, you're never going to appease everyone and every user group. It's so amazingly polarizing as an issue that IMBA, for example, has they lost a lot of membership earlier uh, last year, the year before, I forget when, because of that issue and the, a stance they took. And a lot of their, well, part of their membership was just so staunchly, in, so staunchly ingrained in them that uh, bikes need access to wilderness that they just completely left IMBA. And, you know, I think a lot of the most of our entire board of directors at Bikepacking Roots are strong advocates of wilderness and conservation in general. And the we don't have a form, formal stance on whether bikes should be involved or be allowed in all wilderness areas. We've been taking much more of a individual approach to um, like you can take the, the San Juan Mountains in, in southwestern Colorado and a, a bill that would increase wilderness in basically expanding a, a number of different existing wilderness areas. And that the, the folks that have been behind that for yeah, that push has been 15 years or more to make that happen. And it's, it's moving forward, like gain, gaining uh, a little bit of momentum here now. And that one, like we looked really carefully at all of the proposed wilderness boundaries and how that would affect a couple routes that we've developed in the area. And the expansion didn't impinge upon any existing routes that were aware of people biking. And so in that case, it's like, great. Like we don't see any reason that that shouldn't move forward from simply a mountain bike access perspective and a bike packing perspective. Thinking much more broadly about like the sustainable trails coalition approach, it just, the current political climate seems like one in which revisiting and potentially amending the wilderness act could be catastrophic for opening up just like a can of worms in terms of setting a precedent for being able to amend that to allow access for this or, or allow access for that. And, you know, it's with in power, both the president and part of Congress that are generally rather opposed to public lands in general and that concept and wanting to expand the extractive industry access to public lands in such a huge way. It's it's a pretty dangerous proposition to open up uh, the most powerful conservation uh, legislation that, that we have today and change that for the benefit of a relatively small user group in the grand scheme of things. So personally, there are wilderness areas and trails that I would love to ride, and I'm willing to just not have access to those on bike, knowing that because we have the Wilderness Act in its current protective stance, that it will, like those areas will be protected 
as a result. Yeah. I think one of the other big challenges now is this, this push by the industry and by certain politicians to open up all public trails, not basically all non-wilderness, non-motorized trails to e-bikes, which is a whole other can of worms. But suddenly there's, there's an, a, a push to reclassify e-bikes as bicycles or vice versa, classify bicycles in a way that the definition includes e-bikes. And so suddenly then if you're trying to gain access for bicycles to wilderness, then that by the, the way things are moving forward with, with the BLM especially, and that would include e-bikes, which is, that's just a complete show-stopping proposition for any, any wilderness advocates, because then suddenly you, you do have motors in the wilderness. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's all a really complicated issue. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's complex. And because of that, it, it certainly requires a nuanced approach. And it sounds like that's sort of, you know, where bikepacking routes is heading and, and where you kind of personally, the way you see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And we're, we're very much forward thinking and in terms of new wilderness proposals and just looking at what the the impacts of those are and Imba's also been really involved in some some creative new types of land designations and the Gunnison County Colorado has had a huge public lands initiative um, with stakeholders from all different user groups and industries uh, engaged in that and there's some really neat examples coming out of that of ways of protecting certain areas with wilderness, protecting their areas surrounding that with another designation that might not be quite as protective as wilderness, but still allows more of the existing access to con- and, and usage to continue in those areas while still offering quite a bit of, of um, conservation protection into the future. So there are some really neat, neat examples of, of folks um, problem solving with new strategies. And I think that's, that's, that's what we want to be continuing to look at as options rather than trying to revisit, you know, all the existing wilderness legislation and trying to, to change that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I want to ask you about a unique college course that you and Caitlin Boyle co-developed called geology through bikepacking. Yeah. Uh, That's a course at Prescott college. Tell us what that's all about. Yeah. So that was, um, when I interviewed for the for the job that I ultimately got there, the one of the the questions was about you know if you could propose any course you wanted um, to teach here, what what would that? Be? And uh, a colleague of mine had taught geology there like a decade before, and he had created a course called Geology and Rock Climbing, which was basically a rock climbing tour of the Plateau region and using literally the, the hands-on approach of learning the different rock formations and how they tied into the the geologic history of the region and so building off off that genius idea the idea of using bikes as a means of traveling through landscapes that have diverse geology to study that geology study the relationships of that geology to the landscape surface itself and use that you know kind of five to ten mile an hour speed which is kind of the ideal speed for both making steady progress and being able to take in and think about what's what's around you as a tool for exploring geology on a landscape scale. And so I put together basically the, the geology curriculum, geology progression side of the course. And Caitlin Boyle, who was also teaching at Prescott College for quite a while in the adventure education program and was a bike packer, 
help develop an adventure education and kind of leadership curriculum to go along with it. And so combining those two, uh, it was a four week course and we did, depending on the year, either four or five different kind of two to four day bikepacking trips uh, in different areas and then had a, a van and trailer that would drive to the next next area to get into some different geology or like the next younger suite of rocks up above. And it, I think we taught it three three different times and it was an incredibly successful course, incredibly challenging and tiring to run and facilitate. Even having, I mean, we had, I think at most 12 people total, including, including the instructors. 12 people on bikes trying to make progress one day to the next. Next, Like there's, there's so many things that can go wrong and, yeah. you know, just one, one person falling a little bit behind on self-care suddenly affects the whole group and have to reassess and plan alternatives and like that. But it was such a, um, it was really, really a, a great course to teach. The students loved it. And it, for me, it affirmed just how transformative the bikepacking experience can be. I think for Caitlin, it was just one more obvious piece of evidence for her about how transformative these these really immersive experiences with students in the backcountry can be or with any kind of group. And she had, you know, she had been doing that via either raft or hiking or climbing or skiing with with groups for quite a long time. So she had been much more uh, aware of just all of that. And and she's really hugely inspired by the way that those sorts of experiences and by including education in those experiences to help people understand more about just where they are, why it is the way it is, why we have access to those areas today. All of those sorts of stories can really help create a passion and a connection in the people that are visiting those areas and traveling through them in that immersive way, which then in turn can help create advocates for the protection of those areas. And so that was actually one of the the ways that the geology bikepacking course and some of the other courses she taught that I helped out with also contributed to the concept behind bikepacking routes and using kind of an educational approach in our route development guides to help people better understand and better connect to the places they're riding. And so we've been working on a, a route in uh, the within the original boundaries of Bears Ears National Monument in Utah, which is a whole other challenging public lands conservation story. Um, but that's one that we're we're working on the, the final touches of the route and the route guide right now. And the goal with that is to help facilitate getting more bike packers out into that area to just experience how how amazingly expansive and how much solitude there is in that landscape house and how like you can't find that many other places. And so it's just a special place. And if people, more people experience that and more people learn a little bit more about the geology, about the ecology, about the, the history of who, who's lived there over the last thousand, two thousand years and what role it might play in, in their spirituality. All of that learning, even if it's just a little bit about each of those topics, helps people connect so much more to those places. So that's one of the other tools that, that we as bikepacking routes are using to help instill a conservation, conservation ethic in, in bikepackers to help more of us engage in that, that process of um, public lands management and planning and conservation. So for me, that was the, the geology, the bikepacking course actually was really instrumental in, in helping me see how that could be done with just even like a three day bikepacking trip with students. So it's, it was, yeah, really a transformative course for the students that were in it. And for me as a, as an educator and as a um, conservation advocate, neither Kate nor I work at Prescott College anymore. And so unfortunately that class is no more, which is a bummer, but I think 
there are definitely opportunities to re- recreate that type of an experience, maybe for a different different audience in the future. So that's that's something I'd be excited to do at some point. Very cool. What what is something that mountain bikers should know about geology? I mean, it seems like it it really <laughs> does connect to like our experience, even if we're not studying geology. I mean, you know, it's like why are the mountains out west different than the ones? Uh, that we ride here on the East Coast or like what does soil have to do with like our trail experience? Like seems like there's there's a lot of connection there. You're exactly right. Yeah, I, I would I would argue as a geologist speaking, I would say geology dictates the the, the mountain bike experience that we have that whether it's the, the type of bedrock or the style of it, it all controls what what can be done in terms of trail construction or what the trail might feel like or what the rocks are like. You know, riding in different parts of Arizona can just knowing a little bit about the geology can be like, oh, cool. I cannot go there when it's raining. (laughs) The mud is going to be completely impassable. It's, you know, there's so many things like that. And actually at the end of the course, that was one of the question that the the students had to write a a short essay on is just what in, in your experience through this course, like what, how has geology intersected with mountain biking? And some of the students would be a little frustrated by that because they're like how like everything like, <laughs> <what>? duh <laughs> they'd be a little overwhelmed by by just narrowing their response to the question but yeah it's it, it the geology is just it, it 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 created the landscapes and the the places that we have to ride today and so just knowing a little bit more about the history of that and the history of the rock formations that we're on and the history of that landscape will is so enlightening for understanding just why the roads or the vine roads or the trails go where they do. Yeah. It's, I could, I could talk about that for hours. <laughs> well, I've got one final question for you and I don't know, maybe this is a hard one. Maybe not. What's, what's the most important piece of gear in your bike packing kit? If there's like one thing you could, you could highlight. What, what would it be? You know, strangely, I think my response and yeah, I think my response to that would be my camera. And a few years ago, I never would have responded that way, but I've gotten, gotten much more enthusiastic about documenting where I ride. And I think being able, like, as I've, I've, as I've become more aware of how impactful just the stories and especially the visual elements of an adventure can be for other people and inspiring other people and also for um, articulating and sharing just why I happen to be going to any particular place I do. It usually has a lot to do with the landscape and the remoteness of it. And so being able to capture that and share that in some kind of messaging about a particular place, you know, that's, that's through the camera. And so the, for me, you know, race racing these days is very much about the racing and experiencing places in that particular mindset. But most of the bike packing I do is for a really very different reason and, and to explore places or to learn more about them or see, see something new in those places that I might already know and being able to, to just capture that and, and take it away is, has become more important to me. So I'd say my camera, strangely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a surprising answer. Yeah. If it, if it was actually a piece of gear, like a bike packing specific thing, I, I think I would say my frame bag Okay, because it's the best place to carry stuff. You can shove so much in there. The bigger the frame bag, the happier I am. Well, cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know I'm inspired and I know you inspire a lot of other people to well, to do all kinds of things. I mean, to really appreciate these landscapes that we have for bikepacking um, and just the experience of doing that and for pushing ourselves. And yeah, just thank you for, for sharing that with us. 
Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity. If folks want to learn more about the Bikepacking Roots organization, it's um, Bikepacking Roots, R-O-O-T-S, and you can go to bikepackingroots.org to to learn more about that and some of the projects we have in the works. And you can join if you want to support what we do. Membership is free. Um, it helps helps give us a stronger voice in advocacy initiatives and in different kinds of outreach. And so we encourage people to join through our website and don't have to pay anything to do that, but it's quite helpful for us. And yeah, if anyone is interested in learning more about my racing or coaching or anything like that, um, Ultra MTB is the name of my coaching company. So you can find find more information at ultramtb.net. Right. And yeah, we'll include those websites in the show notes as well. So you can click over to those um, and definitely find out more. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.